When I was growing up and going to school, there was always assigned reading that had to be done, and uh, there was always a little bit of homework to be taken care of. And, uh, and then there came uh, what we would call in this series of messages a time of accounting. And that is a time whenever, it was, uh, whenever your knowledge was put to the test. And when I say test, that's what I mean. I'm talking about test day. Y'all remember, don't you? I remember when I was in Bible college a number of years ago. It's been forever now. But, and, uh, but I remember uh, I was taking a class on the doctrine of God. And in that class, we had assigned reading for every class. And, uh, and you just never knew whenever you walked into the room uh, if this was going to be the day that you was going to get what uh, the professor called a pop quiz. Some of you know what I'm talking about, and that is that he would say, pull out a piece of paper, and everybody who hadn't read the material for that day, you could hear them gasp for just a moment. And uh, he would give us a little quiz, maybe just five questions, maybe six or seven questions over the material that we had just read. And that is, he was sort of taking an account to find out who's been reading and who hasn't been, and, of course, motivation uh, to read the assigned material before you got uh, to class. I can show you, I still have the book that we used, and in that little book as I was reading through it, I tried to imagine the questions that he was going to ask. And I had that section underlined, the definitions of words and things like that, and I, have, I underlined them as I was reading, and after I got on reading, I would go back and try to memorize those points that I thought might be the very questions uh, that he would ask. And sometimes I was right, and sometimes uh, I wasn't. But it was a time of accounting. It's built into the educational system, or at least it used to be anyway. I assume maybe it still is. A time for accounting to make sure that everybody uh, is really where they need to be on the level of learning uh, for that particular uh, class. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that you and I need to keep building that into our life. As a matter of fact, we need times where we just sit down and just do a test of ourselves, just stop and look at ourselves and ask some questions and about ourselves. And one of the areas where we need to do that accounting is in the area of our affection. And that is what it is that we love. As you know, in this series of messages, we've been trying to do that. And that is just to hold ourselves accountable uh, for the expression of affection that we have in our lives. And uh, we know it's really important. We know it's a struggle for us. We know we need this. And the reason why is because of our tendency to love those things that God said, don't love these things. Just like he said in the book of John, what God revealed to us in 1 John 2, that we need to don't, he said the command is love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And just like Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 3, when he said, set not your affection on things here below, on the things of the earth, but on things above. That is where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And that is that we need to love him and not love the things of this earth like we love him. He needs to be the one that we love with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And to love our neighbor uh, as we would ourselves. the Bible tells us. And sometimes we struggle with those areas. And because of that struggle, we need to do a testing and accounting to find out really where we're at. So that if we need to turn around and go in a different direction, that we can make that turn. So if we need to do some correction, we can do some correction in our life. And uh, we need that testing. Now, the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us with that. As a matter of fact, if you study the Bible with any diligence at all, you're going to run into passages that challenge us in the area of our affection. When you read Paul's letters, you'll be challenged there. 
And uh, when you read uh, John, First John, you'll be challenged there. And, and right here in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, has, there are sections that challenge us to examine ourselves in the area of our affection. And Hebrews 13 is one of those places where you find the phileo word used, that is the word that is translated from the Greek, brotherly love is used on several occasions in the first four or five verses of this chapter dealing with the area of what it is that we love. We discovered in verse number one that you and I need to do an accounting of our affection for the people of God where he writes, let brotherly love continue. And we dealt with that in a thorough way in previous messages. We also discovered that along with our love for the people of God, our affection for the people of God, he writes in verse number two about our affection for pilgrims and strangers. Those that are traveling, strangers that are traveling and uh, that need ministry, that need to be entertained. And that word there describes loving the strangers. And that is the Bible says we ought to love strangers. And by the way, some have entertained angels unawares by doing so. And so we need to deal with that in our life. That is easy for us to love people that we know, but what about those that we don't know yet? And uh, so loving the pilgrims and the strangers, we need to do an accounting of that, and we tried to do that in a previous uh, message. We got to verse number three where we discovered that we also need to do an accounting of our love or our affection for the prisoners and the suffering, those that are in bonds and those that are suffering different kinds of adversity in their life that we need to love them by remembering them and by the Bible says here uh, as being connected to them, bound with them. We need to love those who are going through times of suffering, including those who have been imprisoned, uh, in this case, imprisoned for the faith. Loving those who are suffering. We need to do an accounting of that in our life. Sometimes when people are going through a rough time, we kind of act like the Good Samaritan uh, story that Jesus told, and that is we are like the publican, and that is we want to walk on the other side of the street. We want to get as far away from that person as we can, rather than loving them by helping the suffering. We need to do an accounting in our life, as the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us to do. And that brought us to verse number four, where we discovered that one of the errors we need to do an accounting of is in our affection for our partner in life. You notice that this verse starts off, ladies and gentlemen, in, the, in our English Bible with the word marriage and because that's the subject. In the Greek, it starts off with the word honorable and the reason why is because it is describing something that should be held in high honor, exalted in all of our lives. Everybody, everybody in church and everybody in the culture should exalt, should hold up as honorable the relationship that is called uh, marriage. And that is that it is to be exalted above all the other uh, relationships. And we tried to spend a little bit of time in the previous few messages just discovering why it is that marriage uh, is so honorable. We went back and looked at creation, didn't we? That is the story uh, whenever everything began. And uh, the story of creation reveals to us the importance of marriage, why it is so honorable. We looked at some of the uh, sermons of Jesus and discovered that he also honored uh, marriage. And and we looked as well at the statements of Paul in Ephesians 5, where he wrote to those who are wives as well as to the husbands. And the statements that he made that we looked at in the last two or three services revealed to us how it is that we can honor marriage, how wives can honor their marriage and how husbands can honor their marriage. And listen, Listen to me now, the entire church, all of God's people, all of us should honor marriage. Marriage, ladies and gentlemen, marriage is honorable. That is, it stands above, 
It is to be highly exalted. I spent some time preaching about the honor of marriage. And let me just say to you that not only does the uh, writer of Hebrews write in verse number four about the honor of marriage, but what I want you to focus with me on for a little while today is what he writes about what I would call the holiness of marriage. The holiness of marriage. The Bible goes on and it says not only that marriage is honorable in all, but it goes on and it says in the bed undefiled. Now, when the Bible is talking here about the marriage bed, it is talking about the intimate relationship within a marriage. And the Bible says it is undefiled, that is, it is unstained, that it is a holy relationship. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will uh, judge. The Bible says here and is describing to us a relationship in marriage um, that is considered to be holy by God. Now, when I use the word holy, I don't mean that it is uh, that those who are a part of the marriage are sinless. And that is that husbands and wives are sinless because none of us are. I don't really, and I'm not trying to say that marriages, uh, uh, that they, there's no struggle in the relationship of marriage. And the reason why is because there is. And the reason why that there is a struggle in the relationship of marriage is because those who are in that relationship are sinners. And because we are fallen sinful creatures and we are not sinless, there's going to be struggles from time to time in this relationship called marriage. As a matter of fact, I don't know any marriage uh, that doesn't have some struggles in it from time to time. And so I'm not, when I say that marriage is holy, I'm not saying that, uh, that those who are in that marriage relationship are sinless, and I'm not saying uh, that they won't have a struggle. But here's what I am saying, and that I'm saying this. That relationship is set apart and is special in the eyes of God. The word holy means that. That is, when you're talking about holiness, what we are talking about, we're talking about something that is set apart, that is separated from the ordinary, and is set apart as something that is sacred in the eyes of God. Now, when we're talking about the holiness of God, we're talking about two things, that God is sinless. And we're also talking about the fact that God is set apart or separate. That is, there's none like him. God is holy. He is set apart from from everything else. There's none like God. There's nothing or no one that is like him. He is set apart in the class by himself. He is holy. And also, when I'm talking about the saints of God, that is, when I'm talking about those who've been saved by the grace of God, about being holy, I'm talking about the fact that God has set us apart positionally before him. We are a set-apart people so that we have been forgiven of all of our sins and stand before him as though we had never sinned. In our position before God, now that we're redeemed, we are sinless. Now, in our practical everyday life, we haven't caught up with that yet. But in our position before God, we are completely forgiven, and we've been justified, accepted as righteous or holy in His sight. And we are, and, and it means that we are His set-apart people. That, that is, out of all of humanity, God has a people that are set-apart. They are the redeemed. The saints, the word saints in the Bible, it comes from the word translated holy. It's connected to that word. They are the holy ones or the set apart ones. Well, when I use the word holy with regard uh, to marriage, here's what I mean by that. And that is, I'm not saying again that that those uh, who make up the marriage are sinless or that they won't ever have a struggle. But I'm saying that this is the relationship that is set apart. 
by God, among all the human relationships, this one is set apart for a special purpose that no other relationship has. And that special purpose is described to us going all the way back in creation and then also highlighted for us here with this little phrase, the bed undefiled. The relationship of marriage is the relationship that is set apart for us as human beings to express our gender or our sexuality in. In other words, when God created humanity, as you all well know, I preached on it probably last Sunday, and that is that God created us. He created us, the Bible says in Genesis 1, when God created humanity, he created them male and female. And we discovered in Genesis chapter number 1 that one of the reasons why God created us that way is so that we could be together in a one flesh relationship that would also make it possible for Adam and Eve to replenish the earth, that is to have uh, children. And ladies and gentlemen, marriage is the relationship that is set aside for that relationship. For that one flesh relationship that God created us for. And that sets us apart. There's not any other relationships, no other relationships among the human race that is set apart for that purpose except for marriage. And that's the reason why the Bible says here that the bed is undefiled. The reason why is because that's what God created marriage for. That is, he created for that purpose. That is, for the intimate relationship between a man and a woman to be experienced within the boundaries of the relationship of marriage. And that is, that God created us uh, to be able to express uh, our love to one another in a sexual way within the bonds of marriage, first of all, because of the pleasure uh, that, it, uh, that is unique to marriage. Not only because of the pleasure, but also because of the procreation that is unfolded within marriage. And that is that God created us as ge- with gender as sexual beings so that within marriage that can be expressed for pleasure and also for procreation so that children can be born. And also it is a picture, ladies and gentlemen, as we discovered in Ephesians 5, it is a picture of our union with Christ. In other words, just as a husband and wife become one, even so you and I are united to Christ. That is, just like God opened up the side of Adam and he took out of a rib and made the woman, that is, he made her from the man and he made her for the man so that when he came uh, to her, Adam said, this is woman because she uh, came out of man. And the Bible says it's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they will become one flesh. That is, there is a union in marriage. Marriage takes two and unites them as one. And ladies and gentlemen, when God saved you, he united you to Christ. So that you are now in him and he is in you. In an even more profound way, then marriage becomes one flesh. And so marriage is a picture of that. That is the relationship of marriage, the oneness, the union within marriage is not only for the purpose of pleasure and procreation, but it also is to portray a picture of what it looks like that is the relationship between Jesus and his church. And that's what makes it so important. And that is not only uh, what makes the marriage relationship uh, exalts it is because of the picture that it is. And I tried to preach on that a little bit last Sunday. It is, a, it is a relationship set aside as holy. 
Now, you and I are living in a day in a culture, and the world has always been this way ever since sin came to the world, but we are living in a culture and a day in which the holiness of marriage is under attack. As far as our culture is concerned, here in America, there's never been a time when marriage is more under attack than it is in our day and our generation. Never been a time. And that is the very fact that this is the one relationship that has been created by God for the expression of our sexuality. That, it, that very concept, ladies and gentlemen, has been completely disregarded by many and maybe even the majority in our society and maybe even the majority in churches as well. That this is the only place, the only relationship, the one relationship where sexuality is to be expressed, it's been abandoned by many in our culture. And many who haven't abandoned it, ladies and gentlemen, are not really sure whether or not it's really all that important. That is, won't really take a firm stand on what God's design or purpose for marriage as the one flesh union between a man and a woman. As a matter of fact, it's being downplayed in our society. So we're going to try to reaffirm that today. Here's what I believe, and that is a church that won't take a stand on marriage is not a church that's going to take a stand on much of anything. And that is that God has created this relationship between one man and one woman that is designed to be a relationship for life. And, um, and it's a relationship today that therefore we have to guard. And that is marriage has to be guarded. It has to be guarded. Now that's what the writer of Hebrews is writing about when he says that whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. In other words, the enemy, ladies and gentlemen, that we must guard against when it comes to marriage and the one, the one flesh relationship of marriage, the enemy that we have to guard against is the enemy, ladies and gentlemen, of sexual promiscuity. It's the enemy of what the Bible describes here as whoremongers and adulterers. While sexual intimacy within the relationship of marriage is undefiled, sexual expression outside of the boundaries of marriage is, un, is defiled. God sees it as being sinful and corrupt and deserving of his judgment. We'll say that again. And that is it outside the boundaries that God has created, this relationship that God has set apart for sexual expression. Outside of those boundaries, God sees the activity of sexual expression outside of those boundaries as sinful and corrupt and deserving of his judgment. You say, well, Pastor, I just don't see it that way for the day in which we live. Well, uh, it doesn't really make any difference if you and I see it that way. God sees it that way. He sees it that way. There's a warning here about becoming involved in sexual activity outside of marriage. It's a warning that we have to heed if we're going to experience the kind of affection that we want to have within the relationship of marriage. That is, we've got to get a hold of this if you and I are going to be able to exalt marriage as a holy, set-apart relationship. And um, that is, we need to guard our marriages and the whole concept of marriage by avoiding sexual impurity. 
Now, when the Bible uses the word whoremongers here, uh, it's a little bit strange to our ears. It sounds a little bit, I don't know, a little bit aggressive to us, I guess, maybe is the way to put it. The word that is used here is the word that is translated in other places, fornication in your Bible. It's the same word because the word comes from the word porneo, from which we get our word pornography, and it's describing uh, immorality. Uh, and in this case, many sometimes it's describing any kind of immorality, a general kind of term of any kind of immorality. But in the context of this verse, where it's set, where it's set right beside the word adultery, it's probably describing immorality, uh, the sexual immorality of those who are single. And then adultery is describing sexual immorality for those who are married. So whether a person is single or whether a person is married, uh, being involved in some kind of a sexual activity outside the boundaries of marriage, the Bible describes here with these two words, whoremongers, and also with the word uh, adulterers. And uh, it's describing, ladies and gentlemen, those who uh, don't consider marriage to be holy. To be, the, to be that sacred relationship that God has designed just for this expression in our life. So those who are single and those who are married outside the relationship of marriage, sexual activity is not okay. It's not. We might make excuses for why it must be okay, but it's not. The Bible tells us here that it is, a, it is corruption It is the kind of sin that deserves the judgment of God. Now, if we're going to guard the relationship of marriage, that is the holiness of marriage, then we need to take a look at this a little bit closer. And I want you to consider with me the revelation against sexual immorality. And that is when you start reading the Bible, you'll find out God has revealed clearly in the Bible, revealed clearly that sexual immorality is wrong and sin in the sight of God. You just can't get around it. For example, there's the revelation of the law. When God gave the law, God revealed, ladies and gentlemen, in the Old Testament law for the nation of Israel that sexual immorality was outside the boundaries of God's design and purpose and was, it was considered sinful. And it wasn't considered a little sin. It's considered a big one. For example, in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Ten Commandments, don't you? And that is that, that the Old Testament law, ladies and gentlemen, was kind of boiled down into Ten Commandments that were easy to memorize. Now, there's a lot more to the Old Testament law than just the Ten Commandments. But in order to teach their children as they're growing up the basic concepts of the Old Testament law, God gave these Ten Commandments that would be easily memorized and could be stored in your memory. They didn't have Bibles like we do today. And uh, the Ten Commandments were written on uh, stone tablets, and those stone tablets were not copied on a copier. And they weren't carried around by, uh, by everybody. And so, listen, if you're going to remember the law, you've got you to store it up here in your head. And so God gave these Ten Commandments easy to memorize, and, uh, and one of them is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. So here's one thing that God intended for his people to always have stuck in their mind. And that is that as they're living out their life as a nation, if they want to survive long in the land, if they want to live successfully as a nation, then one of the things that they cannot do, that they should not do, is is be involved in sexual relationships outside the boundaries of marriage. That will destroy a society. It will destroy a nation. 
And that is whenever a whole, when marriage is no longer considered holy, that sacred relationship set apart, and instead that sexual activity is, is viewed to be okay just as long as the other person's okay with it and you're okay with it, then it's okay. But I want to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that God is not okay with it. He's just not. And he, lay, he gave that commandment. Now, in the Old Testament laws, you read through the law, you'll find that God expounded on that, that is outside of the Ten Commandments, easy to memorize. God gave a lot of more information in Leviticus chapter number 20, for example. Listen to this. In Leviticus chapter number 20, verse number 10, the Bible says, The man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer, now listen to this, now, I'm going to circle back to this in a little, in a little, just a few moments. But the Bible says, The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And the man that lieth with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death, and their blood shall be upon them. And if a man lie with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall be surely put to death. They have wrought confusion. Their blood shall be upon them. And by the way, if a man lies with man as he lieth with a woman, verse 13, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So in the Old Testament law, this is not just a little thing, is it? To God, it is a big thing. Now this may be a little bit foreign to some of your ears. Maybe not necessarily just those of you that are sitting here in the sanctuary, but to others who may be listening. This may be a little bit foreign. This may be, this may sound like something that's a little bit beyond what is normal church life. And the reason why is because in much of the churches in this country, ladies and gentlemen, uh, God is viewed as just being our buddy and not a holy being like he really is. God is holy. Ladies and gentlemen, God sees sin and corruption for what it is. And he has revealed it to us in this book. Right here in the Old Testament law. You say, Pastor, that's the Old Testament. Well, let's take a look at what our Savior said in the New Testament for just a moment in Matthew chapter number 5. In Matthew chapter number 5, our Lord spoke about this commandment, the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and he reaffirmed it, and he even added another level to it. In Matthew chapter number 5 and verse number 27, in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is trying to reveal to those that are listening to him that they are sinners, not only with what they do with their hands, but also with what's in their heart. He, he speaks to them about adultery. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, that is in the Old Testament, thou shalt not commit adultery. We just looked at that. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Our Lord is exposing adultery for what it is. He's saying whether you're, whether you're committing adultery with your hands, your body, or whether you're doing it with your eye. It's sin 
in the sight of God. Look how serious it is in the next verse, in verse 29. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. Cast it from thee, it's profitable for thee that one member that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And then he goes on, he talks about the right hand cutting it off. You say, Pastor, is that really what the Lord means? He's trying to demonstrate to us, ladies and gentlemen, how serious this matter really is with God. He's trying to reveal to us that those, ladies and gentlemen, who have adulterous hearts are in trouble with God. In verse number 31 of the same chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't let this thing of adultery go with just the uh, looking and lusting. He also deals with it in verse 31 where he says, It's been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. That is, if you're tired of your wife, go ahead and and, uh, get rid of her, but at least divorce her so that she can marry somebody else is the idea. But I say unto you, Jesus said, that whosoever shall put away his wife or divorce his wife, saving for except for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries her that is divorced committeth adultery. Our Lord is revealing to us, ladies and gentlemen, God's view of adultery. He's revealing, listen, it's revealed in the law. Adultery, the corruption and sinfulness of adultery is revealed right here by our Savior. Do you know that it's also revealed for the church? Not just in the law, not just from the Savior, but also this revelation, ladies and gentlemen, comes for the church. There's a revelation for the New Testament church about this issue. For example, in Acts chapter number 15, whenever the New Testament church got together and had a what we would call a big church uh, council, a big church business meeting, to try to hash out among the church leaders... Uh, how they're going to deal with Gentiles that are being saved. Up to this point, only Jews have turned to Christ. But ladies and gentlemen, with the conversion of Cornelius in chapter number 9, and uh, excuse me, in chapter number 10, and then with the, uh, with the ministry in Antioch in chapter number 11, where many Gentiles are getting saved, and then Paul on his first missionary journey starting in chapter 13, this issue of how to deal with Gentiles that don't have the Jewish background in the life of the New Testament church came to the surface and they had to nail this thing down. They had a big, big meeting in Jerusalem. All the church leaders were there trying to figure out how are we going to blend together these two Jews and Gentiles in the same body, in the same church. And so they, had a, they got together and when they got down to the end of it, they uh, kind of had a conclusion. And that is, here's the message to the Gentiles. Verse 19, it says, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble them not. Talking about the Gentiles, that is that we don't try to take all the Old Testament Jewish law that the Jews are accustomed to, all of the feast days and all the the traditions of Judaism, and tries to place them on the Gentiles. That we trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. But that we write unto them, that is send a letter to all the churches where Gentiles have been saved. And here's the letter That is, you don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to try to follow the laws of Judaism. But there are a few things that you need to stay away from. You need to abstain from pollutions of idols. The idols that you worship before your conversion, you got to stay away from that stuff. And also, notice now, from fornication. And thirdly, from things strangled and from, from blood. And that is to the churches, ladies and gentlemen, 
That is, they need to stay away from sexual impurity. You know, the reason why that had to be written is because they were living in a culture like ours in which sexual impurity was the, it was the name of the game. It was the deal of the day. They lived in cultures, that is the Gentiles, where they had idols. And these idols, many of them uh, sort of from the Greek pantheon of gods, these idols that they worshipped, they had temples built to these idols. Prostitutes were employed at this temple. And as a part of their worship, they would go there and they would engage in all kinds of sexual immorality in the name of their God. And they turned to Christ and the letter came to them as you need to stay away from these idols and you need to stay away from the kind of fornication or sexual impurity um, that is a part of that idolatry. Now that's to the New Testament church. In Romans chapter number 7, when Paul was writing to the believers at Rome, here's what he wrote in verses 1 and 2. Romans 7, verses 2 and 3, excuse me. It says, For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband. By the way, that's the very nature of marriage. Marriage by its very nature has a legal binding to it. Somebody might say, well, me and my wife were married in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of men. We, you know, we're married in the eyes of God. Listen to me now. By its very nature, there is a legal aspect to marriage. That is, a wife is bound by the law to her husband. The Bible says here, so long as he lives. As long as he's alive, then she is bound to him. But if the, but if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another man... She should be called an adulteress. But if her husband is dead, she's free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Marriage is for life, the Bible tells us here. And listen to me now. Those who are married, who are connected to another person in a sexual relationship, are married to another person, the Bible says it is adultery. 1 Corinthians 5, ladies and gentlemen, there was an issue in the life of the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, uh, there was a man who apparently was involved in sexual immorality, who was a part of, the New, who, part of that New Testament church. And the Bible describes it as being uh, a form of sexual immorality that even caused, even caused lost people uh, to blush. A man, ladies and gentlemen, who was committing adultery with his father's wife, which we assume to be his stepmother. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1. It's reported commonly that there be fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Here's what Paul writes to the church. He says, you're puffed up. You're all puffed up and aren't mourning. That is, you're all puffed up going around talking about it. Can't believe he's doing that. They, he's doing that. I'd never do something like that. That kind of puffed up. When what you ought to be is you ought to be mourning, grieving that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you, the Bible says. That's what should happen. Verse 3 says, For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already. That is, I, even though I'm not there, I've already passed my judgment as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. And so here's his judgment. Verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together and my spirit, that is, I'm not going to be there in body, but in spirit, and with the power of, the, of our Lord Jesus, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
Now, that sounds like a serious issue among the people of God. It sure is. In chapter number 6 and verse number 15, listen to what it says. Paul writes and he says in verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? That is, your body belongs to the Lord. Do you not know that? That your body belongs to him, your physical body? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Am I going to take this body that belongs to the Lord? And am I going to connect to someone in an adulterous relationship? Paul's response is, God forbid. It's a strong response. May it never be. May God never allow that to happen. He says, what? Know you not that would he which is joined to a heart it is one body? For two, saith he, becomes one flesh, but he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Are those of you that are one with the Lord going to take your body and join it as one to somebody outside the relationship of marriage? No, he said, here's the answer. You need to flee fornication. Get away from it. Every sin that a man does is without the body. But he that committeth fornication, listen, is sinning against his own body. What? Paul says, I, I can't believe what I think I'm hearing. Don't Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. Your body is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of God, which you have of God, and you are therefore not your own because you're bought with the price. Therefore, you ought to glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, and that is your body belongs to God. It's inhabited by him. And you and I shouldn't be doing anything with our body that does not bring glory and honor to God. And in the context, he's speaking specifically about fornication, sexual immorality, but he's speaking generally about anything that doesn't glorify the Lord Jesus. In chapter number 10 of this same book, here's what he said. Going back to the Israelites in the wilderness who committed fornication, and God, and God wiped out thousands of them because of it. He said in verse number 8, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. In the Old Testament, God judged the Israelites because of their fornication with a foreign group of people, and God uh, wiped out 23,000 of them according to what Paul wrote here, and you can read about it in the Old Testament. And ladies and gentlemen, here's what Paul is saying. You shouldn't have anything to do with fornication or sexual impurity. Listen to Ephesians chapter number 4 and verse 17. This I say, therefore, Paul writing to the Ephesians and testifying the Lord that you henceforth are from now on, those of you that are saved from now on, walk not as other Gentiles in the vanity of their mind. That is, don't live your life like your lost friends and family do. From now on, you can't live that lifestyle anymore. It is a lifestyle that is described here as the vanity of their mind. And that's living a lifestyle of emptiness, a lifestyle of vanity in their thinking. The Bible says they have their understanding darkened. The lost do, being alienated, separated and alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. And then in verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness or impurity, sexual impurity, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Don't live like that. That is God's people are 
to be set apart from that. Ephesians 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication, listen to this, but fornication and all uncleanness, that's the ungodly thought patterns that go along with fornication or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. The Bible is telling us here, ladies and gentlemen, that sexual impurity should not even be named among the saints. You're starting to get the idea, aren't you? It's not just the Old Testament law. Oh, no, it's not just our Savior's teaching, but the letters to the churches are affirming that this relationship called marriage is the only relationship set aside for the expression of our sexuality. Why, in the writer, when writing to the Colossians, listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter number 3 and verse number 5. <clears throat> Mortify or put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. That is, you and I need to become morticians. That's what the word mortify means. And that is, it's time for all of God's people to become morticians. You say, Pastor, I wouldn't want to handle anything dead. Well, you need to. You need to. Matter of fact, you need to put to death or declare dead, ladies and gentlemen, declare dead some things in your life. You say, what are, what is it we need to mortify your members which are upon the earth? Number one on the list, do you see it there? Fornication. Same word that the word whoremonger is translated from. Put it to death, uncleanness, which describes, again, sort of the mindset of those who are involved in sexual immorality. And then he mentions inordinate affection, unnatural affection. And that is sexual activity that goes beyond nature. Inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of that needs to be put to death in our lives. Mortify those areas of your life. The Bible is telling us here in Colossians 3. 1 Thessalonians 4. Listen to what it says. Verse number 1. Furthermore then... We beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk, and to please God so you would abound more and more. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, listen, remember I taught you how to walk and how to please God, how to live out your life. Your walk is the direction of your life. And I've taught you what direction to go in that's pleasing to the Lord. And now I'm going to encourage you to abound more and more in what I taught you to grow in the areas that I taught you about how to walk and to please God. Verse number two, he expounds on what he means. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Well, what commandments are you talking about, Paul? Verse three says, this is the will of God. Even your sanctification. The idea of sanctification is the word that comes from the word holy. It means to be set apart. God's purpose to set you apart. And then he gets specific about what he wants them to be set apart from that you should abstain from fornication. Remember what I told you about how to walk in a way that pleases God? Remember the commandment I gave you? About how to be holy, sanctified? 
You need to be doing it more and more. And what I'm talking about is abstaining, staying away from fornication. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no doubt left in the Bible, is there? About what God says about the holiness of marriage. Within the boundary of marriage is where sexual expression is to be experienced. And outside the boundaries of marriage, it must be completely off limits. Outside the boundaries of marriage, it is whoremongering or fornication and adultery. And throughout the scriptures, and especially in God's Old Testament law, it is obvious that the judgment of God is upon the whoremonger and the adulterer. There's a lot more that I have to say about this. But I'm trying to lay a foundation so that you can see why it is that marriage is honorable in all. Why it is that marriage is holy. I don't know what they put on marriage certificates anymore. I haven't seen one in a little while. But used to, on a marriage certificate, our society put on their holy matrimony. Y'all remember that? Some of you got one of those at the house, don't you, somewhere? Holy matrimony. And that is that there were some folks in our society, some leaders who recognized that matrimony, that marriage is set apart as a relationship like no other. And the reason why is because of what this book says. The farther that our society gets away from the Bible, the less matrimony or marriage is considered to be holy. But listen to me. God hasn't changed his mind. He hadn't changed his mind. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm trying to get you to see the holiness of marriage. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and what you're trying to say to us and reveal to us. I pray, Father, that you'd speak loudly to our hearts, that you'd work powerfully in each one of our lives. Father, thank you so much for everyone who is here. And, Father, for those, Lord, that have demonstrated, Lord, a respect for marriage that God have tried to line up their life, Father, with what is clearly revealed in your word. And God, I pray that you'd just provide that correction for us. We know the world is pressuring us. There are family members maybe that are pressuring uh, folks to, uh, Lord, not hold a high view of marriage like you've revealed in your word. That, God, you would help us to guard, to guard, our, to guard not only our marriage, but to guard marriage in general, to regard it as holy like you do. And Father, we'll give you the praise for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let's all stand together. In just a moment now, we'll